how do you shift the consciousness? How do you elevate the consciousness, change the way of thinking of a billion people? Welcome to the Business of Doing Business. I'm your host, Dwayne Kerrigan. With 35 years in business and close to 30 ventures across 12 industries, I've seen a lot. Amid the celebrity allure of entrepreneurship, many exceptional entrepreneurs remain shadowed. Here, I team up with these hidden talents to unveil their challenges and successes. Dive in with me to unearth entrepreneurial gems, learn from our experiences, and get educated. Welcome to the podcast. Glad you could be here. What's going on in your life? What's new? Oh, keeping out of trouble as much as possible. But yeah, I'm going to say it's fun to, for extended travel, to be back in home base and picking up with some projects and new initiatives. So, What do you got in the hopper right now? I'm working on um, a couple of initiatives, which I just think will be a new new direction for the next 10 years. Core of one is just looking at uh, the breakdown in kind of civil discourse, both in the public sphere and online, and how that's you know potentially been exacerbated by some of our wonderful tech platforms. As a technologist, how you can maybe counter that and redress some of that, undo some of the the harm that has been done by some of our traditional and social media platforms, and you know how we can perhaps bring some you know civil discourse back to discussing issues that matter to humanity instead of what we seem to be spiraling down to in the moment so a uh, tough tough problem if there was easy answers then you know they would have been everybody would be doing it wouldn't they absolutely so what are you mainly concerned with when you say civil discourse so how how do you describe civil discourse and what what is it that's angsting you uh, in that area the counterexample for civic discourse is a lot of what we see in today's traditional media and, and the breakdown that we see in our online platforms to a large degree is not necessarily that we're any less polarized. You know, we, I think in the US in particular, we've always had, you know, there's always been this kind of differences between a liberal and a conservative. But I think people have just seemed to have sorted themselves and now it's become their identity. And suddenly, you know, everyone seems to be shouting at each other um, instead of listening. So I think it's, it's, you know, how do you get back to some degree of non-partisan, non-biased, either news, you know, coverage of critical affairs, or if you bring it into our social platforms, how can you have a conversation even about, you know, topics that people are going to disagree on? Uh, without it suddenly becoming, you know, the lowest common denominator of people, you know, calling each other different names or trying to cancel people or create movements to ban things and ban books. And, you know, it's just, it feels, uh, you know, uh, over the last, I would say, 10 years with the rise of, you know, and I don't think it's necessarily the cause, but certainly exacerbated by the rise of the iPhone and, you know, these gadgets and devices in our pocket. And then the incentives that certainly social media platforms have that are really, a, you know, they live in the attention economy. The more attention they have, the more ads they can drive. So, you know, their incentives are personally feel misaligned with the business that they are in, which is really connecting billions of people in the moment and the spread and sharing of, of information to the masses. 
Um, so you've got a business model that really rewards the sensational. It rewards the stoking of rage uh, because that's what people gets people to, you know, the easy way to get people to pay attention and the easy way to have people share things, whether, whether what you're saying is true or not doesn't really matter if if it rewards the attention machine and I get you to spend more minutes on my site versus someone else's and I get to show you more ads. So so I think it's it's kind of this you know social experiment we've been running, I think, over the last decade plus, um, you know, that I think is overwhelmingly impacting uh, the youth as they grow up with these devices in their pockets. Um, you know, it's affecting their psychology, their mental health, their self-esteem. And, you know, they're growing up in an environment that just feels like, you know, any any conversation in the public sphere, you know, is is all about stoking rage and partisanship. So, you know, I look at it and I say, okay, the our tech platforms are certainly and the the business models and the business incentives are certainly uh, a good degree to blame here. So how can you um, use technology to play and perhaps call out our better angels uh, to come and play rather than the little devils on our sh- shoulders when we're engaging in uh, public discourse. I mean, this is obviously a hot topic and, and it's a massive, I think it's a massive problem. I, I would say personally for myself, I, I've, you know, I can look back at my past and, and I'm pretty fortunate. I've got two kids. They're, they're got their heads on pretty straight. Uh, 21, to 50, uh, sorry, 18 years old, just turned 18 a couple of days ago. And so there's a whole bunch of things that pile into this cesspool of, 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 uh, of problem, uh, that that's existing in the, in the world today. And I mean, I look at it over the last 30 years, I've been pretty positive guy. I mean, about humanity, about society, about, you know, I've always had this belief that, ah, oh, you know, my parents used to say, oh, kids these days. And you know, their parents before them said, oh, damn kids these days, you know? Uh, so is this just a, is this a generational fad that is happening, you know, in the world or, and, and I'm asking that question to get a better understanding from where you're coming from. But, you know, I often am asking myself that question, is this just something that's generational right now? And, I, and if I just turned into my parents, the old guy that's saying now, well, teenagers nowadays, you know, you can't, yeah, just can't get, they don't understand. And, and, and of course, you know, their rebuttal is, well, we don't understand. And so I question whether or not, is this a generational thing that's happening right now with the advancement of technology and social media, and we just haven't figured it out and maybe it will figure itself out, you know, down the road, or do we really have a problem on our hands that is systemic in our society? And so, and, and then, how do you fix this? So I've had exactly the same, you know, as I've, I've been brainstorming this idea with, with some folks and it's just, am I turning into the, you know, when TV or, you know, radio or TV or whatever, you know, they each, the media of each coming generation and how, you know, the, the parents were, you know, and I think it, for my generation, it was gaming, you know, the gaming consoles and, Everyone was spending too much time indoors playing games instead of being outdoors and how it's going to lead to the violence of games and so on and so forth. And, you know, I guess 
it didn't necessarily pan out that way. I guess you know it's still still somewhat of a debate. But I think in this, you know this is not just a, a call out the impact on on the youth in terms of tangible, measurable, you know, science-based research that has been done in terms of impact on mental health, rise in uh, suicides or th- suicidal thoughts, so on and so forth. But the wider problem is not is nothing to do with the youth necessarily. It's our politicians. It's our traditional media platforms, whether that be CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, the talking heads just, you know, re, you know, stoking rage against the other. The fact that we've become measurably, you know, from scientific uh, research-wise, as a certainly in the United States, and I think this probably holds for a lot of, you know, Western democracies, has become more polarized. We now look at not just the, you know, I might have more conservative views or more liberal views, but now it's you're a Democrat or you're a Republican in the U.S., and with that comes a label and identity. And now we don't, we can't even see beyond that, and suddenly every issue that we deal with becomes polarized in our media landscape. You know, and COVID was just the the most recent example of, you know, whether you wear a mask or not. not didn't come down to whether it was good scientifically, which it may or may not have been. Best research at the time, at least for a period, said it probably would help. But it was, well, if I'm a Republican, no, I'm not going to wear a mask. It's against my liberty or whatever it is. If, I, if I'm a Democrat, then, well, of course, I'm going to wear a mask. It's for the public good. So, you know, it, that is the landscape that we can't even have that type of discussion without it descending and, you know, into a, a debate about rage and you know, I remain an optimist. I'm a, a, tech, you know, a pragmatic optimist, perhaps, but as a technologist and entrepreneur, I don't think you can't. You have to be an optimist, or you're not going to go take the chances with you know very little chance, you know, very little hope of success, and yet you still take the chance. So, I think I'm wired, and I and I think you know, humanity as a whole, where we sit today, the abundance, the health, the People have been lifted out of poverty over the last couple of decades. I think humanity at its macro level, when you really zoom out, is the best it's ever been. You know, that's not my take on this, that I think, oh, my, you know, we're all, this is all going to end in, in, you know, some global war or, you know, yeah, you know, know, the, the four horsemen are coming type of thing, you know, buckle up. But, you know, at the same time, I don't think that excuses me or anyone from perhaps taking action and saying, okay, just because I, I, I'm optimistic about the future doesn't mean I'm going to sit here and not do anything to help you know, that more optimistic future come about. And so I look at you know, the, this wider landscape of just this polarization, this you know, the, the breakdown in civil discourse. And in some ways, you know, is it different? Well, then, you know, my parents telling me I shouldn't be playing so many games. Well, I think so because it's all generations have been sucked into this. It's not just about the kids being on social media or TikTok. It's about politicians who are septuagenarians posting tweets and, you know, and things to stoke up their base type of thing. So we've all been sucked into this, this kind of attention-driven economy in many ways. And then I also think that, you know, we've, we've been running a social experiment. One of my good friends, you know, he had a great quote, which was, whoever thought connecting billions of people instantaneously and continuously would lead to good things. And yet that's the experiment we've been running. 
you know, certainly for the last, you know, a decade, I guess Facebook came out in 2000 publicly, you know, four or five time frame. But I think it's really since you've seen those platforms with the mobile devices in our pockets that you've really seen this social experiment. And we don't know what, you know, where the, or where this may end up. And so I come back to kind of, you know, something that really resonated for me that I came across, which is just because I this may not be done in my lifetime doesn't mean I'm abrogated from the responsibility of starting type of, you know, to paraphrase a, a quote. And so this is, uh, this is me kind of saying, hey, this is a big, hairy problem. I don't think I know the answer, uh, but maybe I can be part of you know, I can be the shoulders for someone else greater than me to stand on and find a way to bring our public discourse back into something that actually is is for the good of humanity and isn't, you know, driven by a, you know, a rage producing machine that is, you know, our media landscape today. When you look at this social experiment, as you put it, I mean, there's lots of positives that have come from it. There's lots of, certainly some negatives that have come from it. And I love the quote, like, you know, who thought connecting a billion people would be a good idea? I mean, that's an amazing way to look at it. And, and obviously there's going to be some problems, but as a technologist, how do you start to sift through where the source of, of you know, the major problems are or the instigation of these problems that start to fester? And how do you correct it? How do you look at it from that angle and, and start to say, hmm, how, how do I unwind or begin to unwind this? As a tech entrepreneur, I suppose, and you know, with an entrepreneurial lens, I'm going to look at it in a in terms of you know what kind of products or services could I develop or be involved in that might ameliorate this problem um, or counteract this problem. So, so that's my natural lens, and that's certainly where I started looking at this. But I also realized that you know it was a problem space that it you know defies easy solutions and probably defies a singular solution i don't think there's you know we just need the, a better facebook or a better twitter you know bless elon musk for what he's trying to do but you know i don't know as if that's the answer because this is not just about one platform this is about just the way we've you know, wired us, our brains, or, you know, our media system is wired. So what I started on, you know, this, this problem came, you know, came into clarity for me probably over a year ago now. I was at an event and, you know, just chewing on some interesting, you know, some, you know, looking at what was happening at that time as we exited COVID and just thinking, what the, you know, why can we not just be sensible about this? And, you know, that coupled with the quote that, um, that someone presented while I it was at this uh, event, and, it, you know, which I kind of paraphrased, which was, you are not expected to finish the work, nor are you excused from it. And that was the catalyst for me to kind of say, okay, this is something that I should apply my energy to, to see if I can find or come up with different ways to tackle the problem. But knowing I'm just one person, I've, u- I used a, a really spent the whole of last year, pretty much every week, once I got it going, I had a small, what I call the kitchen cabinet. And it's just find some like-minded people who are willing to give you an hour or two of their time a week 
to jump on a call in this case, obviously we're all virtual, and kick the tires on a problem. And this is how when I've started my first startup, you know, coming out of the corporate world and ended up, you know, getting pulled into the Silicon Valley startup ecosystem. It started off with what my turned out to be my co-founder um, of the company we started. He he had an idea uh, in this kind of nascent uh, web 2.0, as it was called back in 2004-5. And he just said, hey, it's just a kitchen cabinet. We come meet on a Saturday around the kitchen table and we just, you know, kick the tires on this, on this idea. And he pulled in, you know, myself as a tech, a couple of us that were, you know, coders and developers and technologists, some marketing people, some people who knew about this kind of more internet and consumer web. And that wasn't any of our backgrounds. And we just kicked the tires on this thing for, I don't know, probably six months. And in the process, it kind of whittled down to the people who stuck through the process and the people who were willing to give up the day jobs. Were, there were three of us, myself, uh, my partner who kind of started it all and another co-founder. Um, and we started a company on the back of that. But it, the process stuck with me. And it was this way of how do you bring in complementary people, people who think differently to you, people with different backgrounds, see who's interested, see who's willing to give you a bit of time. If they're not willing to give you a little bit of time of, you know, out of their busy work week, then they're probably not someone you should be saying, hey, do you want to be a co-founder? <laughs> you, you know, it, it, it allows you to vet people and find those that are really interested. And, you know, maybe at the back end of it, there's no, you know, there's no commitments either way that someone's going to join you and that you're going to even ask them to be and be part of a company. Um, but it's just, you know, people who want to be together and work, you know, and contribute some time. So I did that did that all through last year. And we just looked at this very broadly and said, hey, I'm, I'm purposely not trying to find a technology solution to this problem. Let's look at it. Let's look at the research. Let's read the papers. Let's you know find smart people who have looked at the rise in polarization, that have looked at the breakdown in civil discourse, that have done research and published research around it. Let's kick some tires on some ideas. And out of that year, we came up with eight tangible concepts that we thought could be part of the solution. And we realized very early on that there is no one answer. It's probably a combination of all of these. And in some ways, you almost want to find people who are doing um, and working in all of these areas. And you know, some of them, for example, was regulation. You know, we, we probably need people who are interested in getting some form of regulation put in place for some of our, you know, these platforms that have just developed mass audiences as now and now become these kind of platforms of mass dissemination of information. We probably need regulation because without it, the profit incentive drives people to probably, you know, corporations to do things that maybe aren't in the best interest of humanity. I'm not a regulation guy. You know, that's not, I'm not, you know, that's not my stick. But I know that probably has to be part of the solution. And thankfully, there are people out there that are, you know, from the whistleblowers coming out of Facebook or people creating, you know, like the documentary, The Social Dilemma, who are trying to create awareness and then come up with tangible ideas on regulation. So it's like, okay, that's awesome. Education, probably not my stick again, but maybe, you know, getting everyone to have some form of media training to understand our biases and how easy they're triggered. And to understand how these news organizations, these platforms are feeding us this to get us to, you know, to get our attention. 
you know, so that's an awareness drug education. So again, not my shtick, but we think it needs to, you know, we need to find people who are interested in doing that and that are out there. And then we came up with some, you know, solutions like people just need better platforms. <laughs> people just need real, you know, really a new platform designed from the ground up to be a digital town square that could work maybe at the local level um, for issues at the local, you know, that, that just I care about within my city, but could also scale to work at national issues like having a, a civil discussion uh, where we may agree to disagree around things like Roe versus Wade, for example, and the fact that the Supreme Court repealed, uh, you know, their, their ruling on that. So, you know, I, that's more in my background, you know, that could make sense. Or you look at things like, well, some of the problems we have is just we don't know who the hell's talking. I, I don't know whether they're a Russian agent. I, you know, that's the perhaps the urban myth anyway. But, you know, are they, are they some foreign agent trying to stoke something? And, and, you know, it's paid advertising, but I don't know who's even paying for it. So there's an element of, well, what if you could provide a way of actually proving I'm a real person? And that on this platform, I'm only, I only exist once. So you, you may not know who I am from a privacy standpoint, but at least you know that I am a real person living in America, for example. I'm, you know, just you know, paraphrasing that idea. Um, you know, so there, and there's some people tangibly working on that. Maybe you need, maybe we need a better reputation system where people, you know, based on what they say in the public sphere, whether, you know, written or spoken, we can build up a profile that kind of says, hey, this guy, this person seems like a good faith actor. You know, they're not spreading disinformation. Uh, they're, they're not, they don't seem to be furthering, you know, some other, you know, corporate interest, but they're just trying to be a good faith actor in their discourse. And maybe, you know, we could then reward those people. If we, and again, you know, big hand wavy, how do you do that? But maybe those people then get you know, certain feature access to platforms or they get promote, you know, the algorithms that these platforms use could use those ratings and rankings to be able to say, hey, you know, I'm a f- all for free speech, but that doesn't mean everyone gets equal amplification. And at the moment, you know, our media platforms are really wired to say, if, if you produce rage, I'm going to amplify you. Versus if you're a good faith actor, and again, what does that mean? Maybe different things for different people, but then I'm going to amplify you. So we, you know, that's where we ended up coming out of last year was really these eight areas. Then we thought, well, we really need to identify people who are working in all of them. And then maybe, you know, from my perspective, I look at it and say, which one of these is, you know, do I think I'm uniquely positioned to go uh, innovate on and maybe build a business or a venture or a, uh, you know, something that, you know, a nonprofit vehicle that's good for humanity. And, you know, that's where we ended end of last year, went traveling for a little bit. And that's where I'm picking up, you know, really uh, starting last uh, middle of last month and looking at it and saying, okay, I think, you know, there's a problem here. There's a big problem here. It, could, it has the potential to impact the lives of positively the lives of a billion, uh, billions of people. So, you know, what one do I want to go tackle? And, you know, so now I'm starting a new cabinet, um, inviting people in to specifically look at one of the problem, one of the solution areas that we identified. So that's kind of the process that, you know, maybe it's a moonshot, you know, if you want to use that kind of language, but I think it, it ties back to, 
what I call my massively transformative purpose that I've been chewing on for maybe nearly a decade, which is just this idea that to solve some of the challenges that civilization, that humanity faces, you know, take your pick, uh, whether it's climate change or, again, the breakdown in social discourse and polarization of society, the move from democracies to autocracy, you know, there's something that you know, hopefully most people will be able to identify as something. I kind of look at it and say, well, if you believe what, you know, good old Al, Mr. Albert Einstein uh, says, uh, you can't solve today's problem with the same kind of thinking that created them, to kind of paraphrase that. So I then said, okay, well, you know, if we're going to solve some of these problems, then we need to shift human consciousness. We need to shift the level of thinking of our society at a, at a, at a big scale. So I then came down to, okay, well, how do you shift the consciousness? How do you elevate the consciousness, change the way of thinking of a billion people? You know, how, could, how do we change the conversation of a billion people? And, you know, that's where I kind of, you know, doing my tech things, like, wow, that's a, bit, that's a huge, big problem. I really don't know how to solve that. I'm not going to bother. You know, that's someone else's. It's a great idea. I, you know, I, I, I'll keep thinking about it, but I, you know, I took no action. And as I said, it was seeing that quote over a year ago um, that was, you know, really, I think, you know, gave me the momentum. You know, you're not expected to finish the work, nor, nor are you excused from it. I thought, damn, you know, that, that was a kick up the backside. So, you know, maybe I need to get my entrepreneurial hat yeah, on cool, again. That's a common cool note for sure. <laughs> You just talked, you talked about a few things there, quite a few things, but so one of the things that maybe it's my assumption, but just to get clarity from you is there might be a pocket for you guys to kind of develop inside of creating communities. And that was kind of one thing I think I heard, but, and then I also, there was two other pieces that I thought were really interesting, but one was education. You know, it's, it dawned on me as you said it, and I, I mean, I'd never really thought about it before, but when you said education, it's like, yeah, you, you know. We've, we've launched people into this new technological era and not just with technology, but it's also social media and how to behave, you know, in that environment. And, and then you talked about anonymity. So, you know, that's the other part where it's, you know, you can say whatever you want and nobody knows who you are. So there's no, there's no recourse. There's, there's, you know, nobody's holding you to a standard. I mean, I remember simply, you know, growing up as a kid. I lived in a small community, so it was kind of a little bit more in your face. But if, if, my, if I didn't behave within some guardrails and my parents found out, you know, through friends of friends or at school or whatever, I mean, there was a kick up the hindsight. And so there was some consequence, you know, to how I behaved. That didn't mean I, you know, wasn't an ass at times, you know, of course I was, I was growing up, but, but you know, there were, there were some mechanisms in place to draw you back and hold you accountable and, you know, show some awareness of, of how to behave in a, in a public place. You know, I don't know if you, you know, you, you could jump on a, you know, one or all three of those, where, what your thoughts are. It is very much related. And it's like the lack of consequences, you know, societies, groups came together, formed tribes, tribes created societies. It was good behavior, shall we say, isn't wired into us necessarily evolutionary, you know, you could argue. 
Um, but we are wired to be part of a group, to be part of a tribe, just simply survival from a survival standpoint. And part of that wiring, I think, is there's consequences to action. When there's consequences to action, um, like you were talking about, you know, we we tend to, there's always aberrations, but most of us are going to be, you know, tend to, um, you know, the things that are going to be good for us and good for the group as a whole, we're not going to be disruptive to the group because we would fear being kicked out of it. And so I think, you know, obviously we progressed a long way since then as society, but I think that that fundamental idea of consequences of, hey, if I went in physically to the middle of a shopping center, um, you know, clearly people do do this, but if I went in and started spousing my you know, maybe it's a certain conspiracy theory I believe about, there would probably be some consequences of that. Those consequences are probably what would stop me from wanting to do that. doesn't stop everyone. When you go online, I'm connected to people that have no idea who I am, or I can be anonymous. And obviously a lot of, you know, a whole part of the early internet was, hey, the anonymity is an amazing thing. Yes, it is. And it's a double-edged sword. So it basically it removes... You know, I now get to behave in a way that I never would if I was sat, you know, in the same room as you. And I would say things to you. I don't really know who you are, but maybe we're connected online. And I'd say things in a way that I would never do if we were face to face or if I was in a public forum, because there'd be consequences, because I'd be, I'd be ashamed or whatever it is. So the very nature of online kind of removes all of the normal social norms that would probably reel us back from being completely divisive or, you know, you know, railing at someone or tell them they're, you know, swearing at them or whatever it is. Unfortunately, most of our platforms don't have that. Not only that, they reward the people who shout the loudest and are the most sensational about what they're saying, whether it's true or not, because that gets people's attention. Even if I'm outraged, but if I just watched you and you outraged me, I'm now going to share that with all my friends and say, God, look at this, I come. And so we have, you know, Facebook circa 2012 or whenever it was when they started adding ads and they started to really optimize for that attention. And, you know, not just them, lots of platforms. And suddenly you end up in this world where, you know, there's no consequences for me as an individual to say whatever I want, however I want, whether it's true or not. The less true it is in many ways and the more sensational it is, the more rewards I'm going to get from, my, from the platforms that I'm using. So you've kind of got this double whammy that just, I think, is you know, part of what's you know, driven not just social media, but it's even bled into really how our traditional media is now wired with the talking heads on Fox and MSNBC. And it's allowed, I think, in the political spectrum in the US for sure, You've got 10% on the, on the kind of the right, 10% on the left, shouting at each other and screaming at each other. You know, there's no way they're ever going to see eye to eye. The, the 80% of us sit in the middle. Uh, all we get to hear about in our media, on our social channels, is what these two groups are shouting at each other. So you're 20% of the population yeah, the driving, 10%. you know, 80% of, of the discussion and, and what happens online. And it used to be, you know, Twitter would cover the news. News breaks, people would tweet about it. Now people tweet and news, the news is about what people are tweeting. 
it's so you know it's just become this this you know again i just think it's a cycle down unless we can find ways to change our platforms regulation you know if someone in in congress or in our government would stand up and say hey you, you can't be in the attention business you know, in the digital selling, digital hyper-targeted digital ads, if you're going to be a social platform, find a different business model. You know, you're taking the advertiser out. The incentive is not to find more, more attention to sell you ads. Instead, it's going to be, hey, I need to get you to subscribe to my platform. Oh boy, I better actually make sure that you like my platform and you want to use my platform. So, you know, it, I think, you know, it changes the incentives. So that, you know, and again, there's lots of different areas of regulation but but can, can that regulate can you do that? i have no can, idea like how does that how, how, why I'm not just, <laughs> i'm just trying to think of how, how can you actually get you know that kind of regulation in i mean when especially when you have these opposing views and then you're asking those people to get together and come up with some type of answer like that. I just, I don't even know if that's ever a possibility in our future. And well, I, I think, you know, and again, this might be my somewhat jaded self, but uh, if you look at our political landscape, the politicians have been captured by the attention economy. They're vested in the attention economy because they're tweeting, posting videos. In shouting at the opposition the loudest to stoke the most rage from their base. So they've been captured by the very business model, the very, you know, and again, it's not, I can't blame them necessarily. That's just the way that our media platforms, Fox, CNN, MSNBC, or the social platforms, that's what they reward. So if you want to get attention and politicians are in the attention game, that's the, that's the behavior that it now dictates. So so I think in our landscape today, no, but I do love at a grassroots level what Andrew Yang is trying to do with the forward party in the US, and he's coming at it from grassroots saying, hey, the political polarization between our parties isn't going to change unless we can change the way people vote and the systems that they use you know, from some kind of proportional representation that rewards candidates who are less polarizing. So, so I think, you know, those ground shifts probably need to happen before you could do something like, you know, regulate an entire industry and say you can't use advertising. Uh, but I think there are other ways, other smaller regulations that absolutely could be put in force that, you know, maybe I'd get, you know, bipartisan support. Um, whether that's looking at, I think it's Title 230, that gives all of these platforms immunity from what people say on their platforms. It's like, okay, that's great. But if you have an algorithm that you're now optimizing what gets amplified, I think you should have some, there should be some recourse if YouTube or Facebook chooses to amplify misinformation or information that's harmful to society. If they're merely just a repository for it, that's different. Who determines if it's misinformation like for example in covid at the beginning of covid there was a lot of you know information from the medical profession that was pro and that was against some of the processes and testing and masks and whatever i mean what is who determines what's misinformation anymore now i again i don't think there is an easy answer when you look at something like covid the 
best science at the time said something. And as science evolves, the very nature and purpose of science is, you know, if there are countering scientific results, then science adjusts its view. But at that point in time, you know, for the good of everyone, the best that we could recommend is this at this stage. You know, wearing masks, for example, went from don't wear them because they were afraid, I guess, you know, they would sell out and the medical establishment wouldn't have them to wearing them. And then then it became, a, you know, again, a polarized issue. It's like, well, I think the best science even today says it probably helps. If you got flu or a cold, wearing a mask yourself probably helps counter the spread to other people. I think it's the same for COVID. Is it the cure? If it's, is it the bill on 100%? No. But is it better for you? Right. Yes. No. It could be common sense, right? Yeah. Yeah. And to me, it just falls in, hey, just look at it and think critically or use common sense and answer that question for yourself. And yet you had people with very big platforms who are out there saying, it's a sham, it's a this, you know. Whenever anything goes into the conspiracy theory side of the house, that's where I start to question it, uh, you know, whether it's misinformation or it's ugly cousin, which is disinformation. Misinformation would be, hey, this is what I believe. I may not be right, but at least, you know, I'm not a malign actor necessarily in sharing what I believe. And then you've got people who are actively, you know, in the world of disinformation where I know it's wrong. And I'm going to share it. I think, you know, that one becomes a little clearer uh, because it's just, you know, spreading information that just plainly isn't true. You know, again, not even the scientific truth, but take the case recently with Alex Jones. And, you know, finally, there were consequences for a someone with a big following spreading clear disinformation and falsehoods. And 10 years in the making, there was a reckoning in, in the courts. That's a hard, you know, that if, if every time someone spreads information, it, you know, we have to wait for the courts to weigh it, that's a hard, hard, very high bar for anyone to get any recourse. But at least it sent a message that, hang on a minute, this guy, you know, and this was all around the Sandy Hook um, at the time, claimed it was a conspiracy theory, went on air, you know, his followers, you know, it was clearly, this is not good. This is not a good faith actor. You know, I would at least like something that says, you know, he shouldn't be amplified. And, you know, ultimately he was deplatformed. Um, but, you know, it's a tough one. I, I, you know, there is no, as I said, if there were easy answers, we'd have solutions. Twitter or Facebook, they've got tons of smart people. They would have solved these problems. They are thorny, hard problems. But if I do come back to Facebook and Twitter try to deal with it after the fact, the whole system's engineered such that re, you know, we're going to reward this sensational. And then when things get out of hand, I'm going to use my terms of service to try and remove you or put a marker on that or fact check it or deplatform you or whatever it is versus governance where going in we or rather it, they kind of use governance rather instead of culture i prefer culture over governance governance is what facebook and twitter try to do here's my terms of service i'm going to judge you against this give you some warnings deplatform you remove your tweet whatever it may be but they don't have the culture 
the way their platforms and their businesses very much work, quite frankly, in my opinion, at least. But they don't have a culture that says this is unacceptable. If we can come at it from, we need the culture because then the culture will make those things unacceptable to the people that are participating. That is probably a much better way to deal with the problem than, than governance after the fact. And to that end, what I'm, you know, hot off the press, I suppose, and still very much, a, you know, this is more a, uh, a thought process, an ideation. But my very simple thing is, well, what if it's kind of this idea of just, you know, just thinking big, I don't know if it's technically feasible or have to do it yet, but what if there was the equivalent of a Hippocratic oath that governed our public and online discourse? Now, if you're in the medical profession, you kind of sign up for the modern day Hippocratic oath, which often gets paraphrased as a kind of do no harm. You know, the you know, that that captures a whole lot of things that you know doctors agree in their profession. And if they find, you know, that they've you know been subject to malpractice claims, they go up in front of a medical board and they can potentially get struck off by their peers. So I look at it and kind of say, hey, that doesn't mean there aren't bad bad actors in that medical profession, uh, but yet it's somewhat self-policing. I kind of, you know, the analogy I have is, God, what if we could have, you know, some kind of equivalent oath that those that have a following, those that are influencers, celebrities, politicians, you could incentivize enough of them to take an oath that just is just, you know, basic universal human virtues or truths like, you know, and again, I'm making this up, should we say, but I will strive to do no harm with my words and actions online. I respect the privacy and dignity of others and not engage in, you know, any form of cyberbullying, harassment, or hate speech. You know, I use my words and actions to promote understanding, empathy, compassion, and not spread misinformation or propaganda. You know, you could imagine things that, it doesn't matter whether you're a conservative or a liberal, we may not agree on what's, you know, is this truth or is that, you know, but you could, you know, I'd hope anyone could read those things and kind of say, yeah, I, I'd sign up for that. And then, you know, again, you build a culture around, I'm willing to be held accountable in my online and my public discourse against this oath. Yeah, we might not agree philosophically on our opinions, but we can agree on how we're going to discuss them or how we'll conduct ourselves in a way that is positive to the conversation or positive to the movement. And, 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 and you know, it's funny, you were talking about culture earlier and it's, you know, could this be as simple? I worked for an organization once and you never, nobody got fired. They got voted off as a group. It was a collective, you know, you know what? We just, this guy gets to move. <laughs> Or yeah, and you're on your own, and so uh, you know it's an it's an interesting concept to to think that we could self govern our conduct, not necessarily our opinions. And there's some dancing here in between these because you know you get a bunch of people with an opinion, they're going to want to get somebody out of there. But but as it scales in groups, I mean, there's there's no question there's. There's a lot of roadblocks to governance. There's a lot of roadblocks to regulations. There's a lot of roadblocks, but but when everybody's 
enters a platform and agree, to, agrees to conduct themselves in a certain way. And if they don't, then then they could be asked to leave. I think, you know, you don't want to create the next tech behemoth that just becomes, you know, the next generation's problem or, you know, the, the, the Facebook problem 10 years from now type of thing. And I think it's exactly that. It's looking at this as a movement. And that was one of the ideas we came up with out of last year's brainstorming was you need a movement. You need to create a movement that kind of, you know, boycott, you know, as I've always believed as consumers, we get to vote with our feet. As employees, I get to vote with my feet. If I don't like what my employer is doing um, or I don't like, you know, the, you know, my job, I, I get to vote with my feet. That's, that's the consumer, the beauty of the, of the consumer and capitalist societies and democracies we live in. And I think if I don't like for what Fox News is doing, I'm not going to give them my attention. If I don't like what Facebook is doing, I removed myself from Facebook probably three years ago now for this very reason, which is I didn't like what they were doing in terms of my privacy and the way they were stoking rage uh, and I think being part of the breakdown of civil discourse. So I removed myself from Facebook and post, you know, basically no longer on Facebook, don't, don't check it. You know, I'd love Facebook, you know, before 2012, where I could see what my friends were doing and follow them and keep in touch with people, you know, awesome. I'd love to be on that platform again, but the platform that it is, I, I'm not going to give them my attention while they can't, I'm not going to generate any ad revenue for them. So in a small, tiny little way, I voted with my feet and I'm not going to support businesses with my attention who I feel are not doing the good for humanity. So I think, you know, you know, that was one of the, you know, ideas out of this movement was, well, what if you could build a movement and then set it up as a, you know, and again, uh, I use some of the, you know, not very uh, in vogue at the moment, but from crypto land the decentralized autonomous organization, I like the, the intent of it, which is you want the community to police itself. We all agree. We all take this oath. And as a set of oath takers, um, sounds like a cult now, I know, but, you know, as a set of people that have, you know, signed up uh, and, and promised to uphold this oath, we should get to vote whether someone else is upholding that oath. And that's, as long as you've got diversity in there, as you said, just because we all believe X, we want Y out of here because they believe Y. No, you want lots of X's, lots of Y's, lots of Z's. Um, and you want them all to be able to come together and say, hey, this person's up for review because they've been flagged or someone's flagged them and said, you know, we don't feel they're upholding the oath. Okay, well, you know, as you said, let, you know, did they get voted off the island or not um, out of the collective? And if they do, they'd lose their standing. And then there has to be some teeth to that, which is, well, hopefully, and again, this is a big hope that if you had this and people were, you know, volunt you know, self signing up and taking the pledge, they would be, you know, there was some level of, of accountability for upholding that pledge. Then maybe the, the platforms themselves would say, well, if someone's taken the pledge and, and they're and you know they've got the you like the universal check mark that Twitter or Facebook are now bringing out. Well, I'm going to give them preferential access to features, or I'm going to give them preferential treatment. Their voices, you know, is going to have more weight in my algorithms because they 
have been judged a good faith actor by the collective, not just on my platform, but across all platforms, whether that's traditional media, you know, YouTube videos, you know, what, yeah, you, so you could imagine a world that, and again, I hate to think that it, it descends into, you know, the thought police in 1984 and so on and so forth. But that's why I think it's important that it it's for the good of humanity and therefore it has to be in the hands of the people. So it's kind of by the people, for the people type of idea. And again, how, how you engineer that, um, TBD, watch this space. It's a massive problem, bud. <laughs> I'm glad you're working on it and not me. <laughs> From a technologist standpoint, you know, what, what was hitting me was wh- how do you even begin to unravel even what we've talked about? And it, I mean, if we just took the example of, you know, a, a collective, you know, kind of voting process, self-governing, h- how would you as a technologist start to, to engineer something like that and, and, and what would be required and who else would you have to bring in? And I mean, it seems to me that it'd be pretty difficult. I think if you go back to the kind of old venture um, startup maxim, I'm trying to think who, who it came from. Um, but it's, you know, think big, start small, scale fast. So, if, you know, if you're going to do kind of the tech entrepreneur world that I've come from, if you're not thinking big, then, you know, you've got to ask, you know, am I solving a big enough problem that's going to, you know, be a sustain, ultimately a sustainable business? Um, am I, you know, it may, you know, from where I am in life, is it going to make enough, you know, is it going to have a bigger impact? Am I, am I going to do enough good or, or good for society as a whole? So, so think big. So I think last year was all about thinking big. This idea that, you know, some of the things we just riffed on all came from that kind of big thinking. So now it's like, okay, start small. So where the hell do you start? Because otherwise, if you try and boil the ocean, you, you know, there's no way. So you've got to break it down. You've got to chunk it down. And that, that's part of what we're doing now with a little kitchen cabinet that, you know, that's working on, okay, how do we break this down into something where we can take a cup of water and boil that and then take another cup and boil that and boil that and so forth? So, you know, as a technologist, you know, I, I want to go build tech and platforms and AI and, you know, that, you know, use some of the, the amazing advances we've seen with the likes of open AI and chat GPT. So my mind goes there, but my answer is it's starting small is easy. You set up a website, you create the oath. And then the hard part is you have to find some people with platforms that have reach that are that believe what we're talking about, that see the, the common sense of it, that see it's even feasible to do and get them to be your, your founding community members who are going to sign up and take the pledge and publicize the fact they take the pledge and be willing to be held accountable for taking the pledge. So it's a website where someone can sign up and, and then it can show you that this person's taken the pledge and you then have them you know, with their following, whether that's a podcast, um, it's a politician, it's a celebrity, it's an influencer on TikTok, uh, you know, you, all walks of life, all, you know, you want to, you know, ideally get people from all of those spheres. And I think if the, if the 
you know, this Hippocratic oath, if you like, if it's compelling enough that you just kind of look at it and say, well, why wouldn't I? Then the only problem is just getting the bullhorn and getting, just saying, hey, look, this is nothing other at this stage than just, you know, these people have agreed to uphold this set of um, standards in their public discourse. And, you know, there you go. That, you know. So the hard part is finding your founding community members that are crazy enough to believe or see the pain that you see um, and are willing to jump on board. And after that, you know, I think then technology comes to bear, which is, okay, well, how do we, how do we make it enforceable? You know, how, how do we monitor what these people are saying? How do we somehow look at what they're saying and do some kind of intent analysis, you know, understand, you know, because obviously once you get to scale, you can't have human beings necessarily. Maybe in the early days you could be kind of have human beings checking everything that everyone else is saying. Um, so, you know, is there some way that you can use some of the, you know, the, the massive shifts we've had and uh, in technology and, you know, AI is obviously the one that springs, you know, most to mind with uh, some of the large language models that have been developed to be able to automate and look at a monitor. And um, yeah, so I think, you know, phase one is you create a movement. You know, you've got to build a movement. So I think it's that's the first phase that if no one cares, then that it stops there and then. But as with, you know, movements take time to develop and need critical mass. But once you've developed the movement, I think then you can apply technology to say, okay, well, how do, can we use technology to help with, you, you know, making sure that there is some accountability for the pledges that, that people have made and that they are truly upholding in their public discourse. They are upholding their, their oath in the public discourse. So I think technology can come to play. Um, at that stage. And then I think you can develop, you know, that, you know, maybe that becomes more of a platform at that point. And then you can develop more of a system around it, which is, okay, well, now how do I make it so that others can take advantage or leverage uh, the fact that we have people who are being held accountable uh, across their, you know, their media platforms that maybe they're on? And then maybe these platforms can use you know, this, you know, your reputation as being part of the, you know, this group for their own good. And they can use it to improve the quality of discourse on their own platform, because now they can amplify people who have a common cultural approach to, you know, online discourse. So I think, you know, that would be, and again, that's just some, some quick riffing and thinking that, you know, uh, um, I've been kind of think, you know, put, you know, having a, at, uh, over the last few weeks, but I think it's a step funky. Where you could get to is maybe this whole these distributed, decentralized community organization that is self-policing. But you don't start there, you know. As with any entrepreneurial endeavor, you know, you, you know, you want to be, you know, a big successful company ten years from now, but you don't start out being a big successful company. So you've got to work out where to start small, and then you know, once you found, you know, resonance within the user base market community or whatever you're going after, you know, in this case, obviously trying to build those early founding community members, um, then you figure out how you scale. And I think technology is, is the way you scale. Who else is doing this stuff? I mean, 
you know, there's lots of people that are, I mean, every single dinner party I go to, everybody's talking about this. Everybody's talking about the, the concern that social media is turning this world upside down and people have this unlimited platform and da, 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 da. it's like, so, so there has to be other people out trying to solve this problem. What have you seen? There, there definitely are. And again, if you go, you know, zoom out a little bit, as I was talking about earlier, what we were looking at last year, there's people pursuing regulation, politicians and lobby groups, researchers that are doing research on the consequences of, you know, our attention-driven economy um, and the, um, you know, the impact on society. So absolutely, there's people trying to do education with documentaries like uh, The Social Dilemma. So I think there are people working in various areas. There's, there's people working on proof of personhood so we can kind of be sure that, you know, I may not know that it's Dwayne, but I know you're a real person and not a bot or, you know, some foreign actor pretending to be a real person type of thing. This particular lens, you know, when I look at, you know, is there anyone trying to tackle, there's people trying to build new communities, there's people trying to build new platforms, a better Facebook, a better Twitter, um, or a different type of community platform that, you know, that's, app, you know, whether it's in the kind of web three decentralized internet world or just normal internet world. There's definitely people pursuing that. What I haven't seen as we were doing all of our research is someone that's coming at it from what I've just talked about with this idea of what if you could just have a universal kind of Hippocratic oath that would be self-policing of public and online discourse, at least for those that people that matter, should we say, those with significant reach, those that, that, that have a big voice have not seen anything in that necessarily. I think all, all I've, from the research we've done, we've seen Facebook trying to be, you know, use technology, AI, and huge groups of content moderators to try and do the governance part. We've seen Twitter try to do the governance part and then disband their whole governance infrastructure with when, you know, it got acquired and all of the people that did that, are, you know, aren't doing that anymore type of thing. We've seen people refine their terms of service or try and dance between, is this, you know, misinformation? Is this not missing? You know, is, is it subject to our terms of service? Is it not? So we've seen the reactionary. What I haven't seen is anyone trying to do the, you know, try and deal with it up front as a culture problem. Seen people trying to build awareness, trying to, you know, people and researchers writing books around our biases and how so, you know, how we're so easily led as human beings. So lots of that, but still no, 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 no one outside of the individual platforms trying to police themselves. To paraphrase what I said earlier, um, you need you, to solve today's problems needs a different level of thinking, a different type of thinking. And so the beauty of being an entrepreneur and being outside the frame of, of being in Facebook or Google or whatever it is, we get to see it from a different perspective. So, so I think there's, you know, don't get me wrong, I think there are smart, uh, motivated people trying to tackle elements of this problem. And I think it's going to take all vectors to align for us to really tackle this problem. Even what I'm talking about is just one part of the solution. I don't think it's the solution. I don't think there is the solution. I think it's part of 
and adjustment along with regulation, along with education, along with maybe better platforms, maybe better business models, you know, or at least incentives to use different business models beyond an attention-driven kind of ad-driven uh, business model. Um, I think all of, what I'd love to see, you know, and, and we toyed with this idea was it's almost like you need to put on a conference and invite all of these people who are working in these different areas just to come together and, you know, knock heads and like multidisciplinary and say, you know, all the researchers that are, you know, who are charting out the impact on society that, you know, we've seen over the last 10 years, get them all in a room and just say, hey, we need all of us to be focused in these, uh, in, in all of these areas for us to really tackle this problem. And I think, you know, that's what you've seen, you know, the good part about COVID was, sorry, there was nothing good about COVID necessarily, but there was a lot of polarization. There was a lot of misinformation, disinformation. And yet <laughs> there's a certain section of society that doesn't believe in vaccines, don't get me wrong. And that's that's fair enough if that's your belief, but we developed a vaccine on a global scale in a time frame that was absolutely unheard of by open research, smart minds working together um, to come up and solve a problem that in normal regulatory and efficacy lands would have taken decade. And they did it in 18 months. So it's kind of, I look at that and when you can, bring smart people together, uh, human beings can do amazing things. That's what that's the optimist part of me, I suppose, is um, this is not an insurmountable problem as long as we need enough people to be aware that it's a problem so that they're motivated to work on the solution. It's kind of like we need it. It's the old shifting, the idea of shifting the consciousness of a billion people I talked about earlier. It's we want to change the conversation. The changing conversation leads to a new narrative that leads to a new imperative that drives new action. And so part of this is, you know, that you just need a small subset of people to be having a different conversation and creating a new narrative that creates a new imperative for them that drives action. And, you know, I'm just one of many people that I think see this as a problem um, and are, you know, have an imperative to do something about it and are being driven to take action. And that small group of people can change the world. There's a silver lining to every cloud. And I'm a firm believer that every problem that exists is exists to lead us to a solution or a path to a solution, whether there's many steps to it. And, you know, when you talk about, you know, the change in consciousness, which is probably needed. I mean, it's, it's obvious it's needed. Sometimes things have to get worse before they get better. And in order to do such a thing, like change, you know, even to think about the change of consciousness of 8 billion people on the planet and how we look at things, you have to have a major problem. You have to have a, an epidemic, a pandemic, a whatever it is. And, and, and this is, you know, maybe the pandemic here with COVID was just a lead in to, you know, what the real pandemic may be, which is, you know, this this elevated discourse that's happening, not just in North America, it's happening around the world. I mean, it's everywhere. And, you know, that is, you know, the cause that will lead to the effect of, of changing consciousness. It's an, inter it's a, I mean, it's a, it's an unbelievable conversation and it,
Not not the one I was expecting to be having today. This is <laughs> you, you can't you can't publish this podcast for probably a year because it's it's all completely confidential. Well, and I've, it's going know, live. I've, I've got to launch so. something first. <laughs> hey, maybe with with all my followers, I mean, this will probably lead you something th that will be a, I, some type of gift from from the Dwayne Kerrigan podcast to Joe Rogan in one hop. Boom just because I had you as a guest, right? <laughs> Absolutely. We could take this anywhere. I'm, I mean, the, the, this conversation has been unbelievable. And obviously you've spent a lot of time thinking about it and, and it's fascinating to see your thought processes through it. You know, I'd love to carry on the conversation with, you spoke about AI and being able to utilize some of that technology, which would be, you know, fascinating for you as a technologist. And you talked about chat GBT, GPT, like mind blowing. We use it, uh, fairly regularly and it is, it's just mind blowing what it does. Scary. And, you know, maybe this is a lead into another invitation to be, you know, come onto the podcast because those are conversations that will probably take us another hour and 10 or 15 minutes that we've already been on this call. And so love to have you back for that. If, if, if you're open to it. Unbelievable conversation, man. Thank you for, for the time and, and the thought that uh, you've put into this. Yeah, my pleasure. And uh, I'll be happy to come back anytime. And... Thanks for listening. I appreciate you being with us. If you found value in the show and know a friend or a coworker who could benefit from the conversation, please share the link via text or on social media. Remember, each share creates a ripple effect of knowledge and inspiration. We'll see you next week. The views, information, or opinions expressed by guests during the Business of Doing Business podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Dwayne Kerrigan and his affiliates. Dwayne Kerrigan or the Business of Doing Business podcast is not responsible for and does not verify the accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series. The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. Listeners are advised to consult with a qualified professional or specialist before making any decisions based on the content of this podcast.